0: Thank you for taking a listen to the second edition of Forward Slashes, a production of Fractions Journal. This time we're going to be bringing you a live recording from a reading that was performed at the Donut Hole on December 11, 2009. The event was called Micro's Micro and was a reading of flash fiction hosted by Wichita State University's literary magazine, Microcosmos. The authors are all MFA students from Wichita State University and include Daisy Carlson, Matt Grohlman, Rebecca Rawls, Ian Golding, and Luke Geddes. The clip was edited slightly for time, but includes one reading from each author.
1: Okay, cool. Our first reader is going to be Daisy Carlson. Daisy Carlson has been bitten by two poisonous spiders in the last year. Her flash fiction has nothing to do with that, really, but it might someday. Give me, put your hands together and welcome Daisy.
2: Hi everyone, thanks for coming. The first piece I'm reading is Sensible Failure. Adam stood in front of Ashley's artwork in the long haul. He stared at her rosebush picture. Her photography was plain, but he never told her. He wanted to support her hobby. Ashley's artwork was featured in a collection this semester with some of the other students in her art class. Most of the photos in the collection displayed small children in cutesy poses. Adam secretly thought all of the photos in the collection sucked. He hated being at stupid art galleries anyway. Later on that night, there was supposed to be a presentation about the artists and their motivations and aspirations. Adam was planning to slip out the back door and sit in his car. He wished he had brought his flask. Ashley always asked Adam how he felt about her pictures after she turned them into her professor. She would be very excited after she returned from the darkroom at school. But Adam could not remember one instance where he actually liked one of Ashley's photos. In fact, Adam thought that Ashley would never be a famous photographer. He had decided long ago that her art degree was a joke. Yet he always told her that he loved her pictures. He would find one detail about each picture and comment about that. And no matter how bad the picture was, his plan never failed. Stick to one detail and go from there. Try to sound impressed. Adam thought he could get away with his critiquing plan indefinitely. Adam had met Ashley in college. He knew when he met her, she was a bit of a pretentious bitch. But that's what he loved about her. Adam was content with a simple life and a simple girl. Easier to deal with, he figured. Ashley couldn't give him too much trouble because she just wasn't as smart as him. As long as she never knew his secret, things would be fine. Adam had kept his secret for three years now and wasn't planning on giving in anytime soon. Adam started small talk with another girl in the art department. He wanted to get out of there as soon as Ashley began her presentation. He had read the speech the night before, so as soon as she started, he he began to slip out as planned. A few minutes later, one of the professors introduced Ashley as the first presenter. Ashley walked up to the podium and started her speech. In the first sentence, she cited Adam as her primary influence for her photography. Adam smiled and inched closer to the door. He heard Ashley say something about the beauty of life, but he couldn't remember reading that in her speech. He passed through a group of art kids to get to the back door. As he pushed on the exit bar, he turned and looked back back at Ashley. What a stupid cunt, he thought. She'll never be good at anything but loving me. Adam lit a cigarette and walked to his car.
1: Um, Thank you, Daisy. Uh, Matt Groldman is our next reader. He was raised in Erie, Pennsylvania, received his BFA in fiction from Penn State Brennan, where he worked on Lake Effect. An avid guitarist and bass player, he spent the next two years playing live music and working at the Majestic Press Isle State Park. Matt feels most at home when he's sitting around a campfire or shooting a game of pool, which he's very good at. I know this. Okay, please put your hands together and welcome Matthew.
0: Thanks for coming out, everybody. Um, My stuff's kind of tame, I guess. Uh, First piece I'm gonna read is uh, from a collection I did as an undergraduate. It's about a band. The name of the band is Jigsaw Sky, and that's also the name of this piece. It's kind of where they got it from. Um, And the one thing I guess you need to know from this is that the character Bill runs a music instrument store where the band all works. So, Jigsaw Sky. They all went camping that week just before school. Bill taught them everything they knew, how to set up a tent to stand against the wind, how to cook breakfast over coals from a dead fire, how to catch fish off the bank of the Allegheny. He even closed up the shop for a week and let the band borrow some acoustics and hand drums. They sounded different outdoors, away from the city noise. Bill had just pushed chicken, wrapping aluminum foil out of the fire with a stick when the boat pulled up to the riverbank. Two men in camouflage t-shirts got out and started hiking up to the campsite. The band was smoking a joint around the fire and writing a song when they reached the top of the hill. The two men asked Bill if he had permission to camp on the land, and Bill made a joke about being part Native American and asked them the same question. They didn't laugh. Bill finally told them it was his uncle's hill. He offered them some chicken. They said that for the weekend, they only wanted to eat that which they killed or caught themselves. The band offered them the joint, but they said they never touched that kind of thing. But they take some whiskey, they said, so they drank whiskey for a while. The two men were stockbrokers who'd been wa- raised on farms in central Pennsylvania. They spit tobacco juice on the fire and talked about their wives and their children as the band played. One of them asked if they could hear some country western or some folk songs, but the band didn't know any. Then the bo- when the bottle of whiskey was half empty, they went back down to the river and swam for an hour or so before they revved their boat and drove off. The band laughed at the men while they swam and after they left. They would mocked the way they brought up their wives and children. Bill told him to watch their words. They went back to writing and finished their song an hour after the sun had gone down. That night, there was no moon. Later, they found another abandoned campsite on the other side of the hill in a clearing and played their song there under the light from the stars. Bill tried to teach them the constellations. He said he loved astronomy because it made the universe into a puzzle, which he said it was anyway. He liked finding the pieces in the sky. It helped him think about clearly about everything else in his life. None of the band understood what he meant by that. He spent an hour or so trying to explain it to them, but in the end, all the band took away from it was a name.
1: Thanks, Matt. Um, Next up is Rebecca Rawls, and she will probably tell you that she got her cold from me, which is why her voice is going out, but it wasn't me. Rebecca Rawls graduated from Converse College with a Bachelors of Fine Arts in Creative Writing and Professional Writing. And her favorite flavor ice cream is pistachio. Welcome, Rebecca.
3: <laughs> Jody Lidke lies. I did get my cold from her, despite what she says. So for this evening, I'll be impersonating a jazz singer. Uh, This is a story in the second person, Uh, it's called Portrait. Uh, I wrote it a few years ago, so here we go, Uh, Portrait. You walk into the building, head down, eyes unfriendly, so as to avoid conversation. It's your first day back, and you know you'll be spending the rest of the week playing catch-up. Sure enough, the, the box on your door is crammed full of stuff. There are some cards mixed in with the rest of the paperwork and memos, and you toss them aside. You'll leave them there unopened so that everyone will see they have no place in your grief. You turn on the computer, its overly cheerful startup chime just as obnoxious as Beverly's shrill whine. You can hear her through the closed door. Imagine her glancing over at your office before leaning in conspiratorially to relay the story. Her partner in crime, will glance from the door to her, their mouth widening into that little O of understanding. You fiddle around on the computer for a while, waiting through spam and emails that have been piling up in your inbox. You've missed a couple of meetings, but don't worry, the chair assures you, you can catch up at the next one. There's a knock at the door and you shuffle around some of the papers on your desk in an effort to look busy. Come in. Sorry to bother you, professor. It's a student from your freshman composition class, but you can't seem to remember which one. I was just wondering if you'd had a chance to grade our essays yet. Third row on the left? No, she sits closer than that. I know you've been out, so I understand that they aren't finished. Center section, front row? Yeah, yeah, that's it. I guess you're not done then. I'll just, I'll just go. She turns to leave, but stops for a second. I wanted to tell you how sorry I am. You mutter something that is meant to be a response but don't make eye contact. Well, well I'll see you in class then. She leaves, shutting the door so that you're alone again. You sit back in your chair, thinking just how irritating it is that people keep poking their noses into your life. You think about the large trash can beside the house, the one that the city picks up, how it's layered with shredded roses baby's breath and lilies. You smile, satisfied with your quiet defenses against the neighbors and their imagined empathy. Avoiding the essays at center section, front row comp has reminded you of, you try to give your desk some semblance of organization. You shuffle through assignments, making little piles for each class, grab a stack of books and carry them over to the shelf. There isn't much space, but you manage to squeeze them in between Chekhov and Camus. When you turn to sit back down, you notice a piece of green construction paper on the floor nearby. You pick it up and turn it over in your hands. It's a picture that Danny drew for you at school, some assignment that resulted in two vaguely rectangular blobs with yellow circles on top. Above that, printed in the large, neat letters of a teacher are the words, my family and me. You suddenly remember the day that Danny brought this home, The teacher had given it a gold star, the first he had ever earned. Together, you marveled over the complexity of the image, Danny's brazen use of color, the way the rectangular scribbles seemed almost lifelike. Even after you promised to hang it up, on every visit he always checked to make sure that it was still there. "Sea sport, you would say, I told you it would be here. How had it fallen down? How could you not have noticed? You go over to your desk and begin looking for the scotch tape, pawing through drawer after drawer, but there isn't any there. How can there not be any scotch tape? You look again, digging deeper this time, ignoring the loose thumbtacks jabbing the soft pads of your fingers. When you still can't find any tape, you yank open your office door and cross to the supply closet. Post-it notes, pens, staples, letterhead paper. You shove these things aside, boxes of paper clips spilling onto the floor like so many 10 soldiers. Someone comes up behind you. You can feel them staring. What are you looking for, hun? It's Beverly. Reason I ask, dear, is that one of the students just re- rearranged everything, made it all nice and neat for us, so maybe, God damn it, where is all the fucking scotch tape? This is an office for Christ's sakes. Why isn't there any scotch tape? So maybe if you could just tell me what you're looking for. The tape. You spin around to face her. Where is all the tape? She waves a hand at you and chuckles a bit. Funny you should ask. Funny, funny, how is it funny? You tear over to the secretary's desk and start jerking open the drawers. Well Fran came looking for tape today too and wouldn't you know it, she took the last roll. What? You stop dead, horrified. Isn't that how it always goes? She laughs out loud a brassy nasal sound that sets your teeth on edge. When you don't need it, you've got too much and when you do need it, you can't find any at all. Slumping down into the secretary's chair, your whole body goes weak. You look down at the picture clenched in your fist. The edges are crumpled and torn and there's a little rip right through the rectangle that's supposed to be you. You touch your fingertips to the waxy surface, feeling the gap between your chest and the rest of your body. Jagged edges edges that can never be mended. Thanks guys.
1: Thanks Rebecca. Your voice held well. Uh, our next reader is Ian Golding. Um, He grew up in Columbus, Ohio. He's the editor of Interblog Bang, and he drives a green scooter, which I did not know that. Okay, welcome, Ian.
4: Um, Thank you, Jody. Uh, Thank you, Microcosmos, for this, and thank you for recording this. Uh, But can I get some more bass? in the mix, that's good. I'm not a, I'm not a good reader. Can't tell. Um, my birthday was uh, in November and with the holidays coming right up. Uh, if you haven't bought me something yet, maybe this will give you some ideas. Uh, it's called Treasure Box. Philip pressed his thumb against the head of the turtle forcing it down as he nuzzled the tip of the crowbar into the slit between the shell and neck, where only a thin layer of flesh protected the hole in the shell. The membrane split easily, and he rocked the iron bar back and forth until it was deep in place, the two metal flats about an inch within the shell. Philip released the metal and left to get another drink. Unbalanced, the crowbar tilted and fell flat against the table, sending vibrations through the iron to the turtle. Pieces of sawdust floated up near the light, hung there for an instant, and then slowly drooped back down, collecting in the same places of origination. The turtle, on its side, alone and still attached to the crowbar, gazed up at the light and dust with one eye and down with the other. Legs kicked frantically and tucked in under the shell and then kicked out again. The right side dangled in the air, the left immobile against the table, the head, unable to retract into the shell, jerked slowly around, mouth opening, closing. Philip, back again, picked the crowbar up and held the turtle like a lollipop, examining the creature as it wiggled around. He did not pay attention to the red stripes that ran around the entire perimeter of the shell, nor did he see the patterns of greens and yellows, some deep and earthly, some nearly chartreuse, that made up the underbelly. And so, uninterested he turned the crowbar around and pressed the turtle against the table Philip gripped the crowbar the metal still warm through the wet cool hands that had just popped the tab of a new beer the temperate stiff piece of iron seemed almost alive as he prepared to force his weight upon it if 14 people are executed how does the 14th person feel does he struggle and try to flee in one last attempt for escape or simply quietly except the fate of the 13 before. Had the turtle been able to move, to peek in the corner, to see the pile, two feet tall and leaking, of turtle carcasses carelessly cast aside, then the situation might be different. But as, that, but as it was now, the turtle, only able to see the seemingly endless expanse of table, continued to flail its legs, hopelessly nudging centimeter by centimeter. Then crack, pop, a silent ooze, the soft steaming innards against the cool air, the shell open, lifted like a treasure chest, an empty treasure chest. The body, refuse, trash, cast aside on the growing pile as Philip walked back out into the darkness to check his traps, to find a diamond, an old buffalo nickel, a lead toy soldier swallowed long ago by a box or a snapping turtle. All right, thank you very much.
1: Ian, you did a great job reading. That image of the turtle is going to stay in my mind for days and days. Our last reader is going to be Luke Geddes. Luke Geddes' sleepy, well-intentioned short stories have been published in Gargoyle, Quick Fiction, Regarding Arts and Letters, NAC, and other journals. Please join and join me in helping join me. Please help me and join Luke to the
5: stage. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, before I begin, I just want to mention that this story is dedicated to the dolphins, not the football team, but the majestic creature. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the story is. He is R.L. Stein, the author of Goosebumps. <laughs> R.L. Stein is at Goodwill shopping for a necktie that matches his shirt. He has a job interview at the Photo Drop, assistant manager and he spilled ketchup on his tie over lunch at Burger King. R.L. Stein's diet is founded on the dollar menu. He has only $23 left in his banking account. According to a 1997 issue of Forbes, R.L. Stein was the 46th best-paid entertainer of the year. All he ever wanted to do was entertain children. He has never stopped. It is they who refuse to be entertained. On his way out, snaking his new tie into a half Windsor, he passes a box filled with tattered Goosebumps books. Two teenage empl- employers, employees stand around reciting the titles to each other and giggling. This one's called Revenge of the Lawn Gnomes. Ooh, scary. Check out this classic, Night of the Living Dummy 3. Are you sure that's Goosebumps? I thought Faulkner wrote that one. Ha ha ha. R.L. Stein pictures the blood fluttering out of the holes in the teenagers' heads after he shoots them with a 45. Their skull fragments would collide in the air, and in the subsequent commotion, R.L. Stein would escape out of the fire exit unnoticed. The photo drop is a booth in the parking lot of Woodland Strip Mall. No developing is done on site. The film is sent to a plant across town. R.L. Stein's only work experience is writing best-selling novels for children. His only achievement, being the Stephen King of the pre-teen set. That was before they called them tweens, when he was still an international celebrity. He once had a one-night stand with Judy Bloom. He was invited to the White House. He snorted blow off a playmate's breast at the Playboy Mansion. He even met the actual Stephen King at a dinner party thrown by his book agent. Stephen asked him to sign a copy of the Horror at Camp Jelly Jam for his son. R.L. Stein's agent has not returned his calls in a long, long time. J.K. Rowling is doing a reading at the Woodland Barnes and Noble. Thousands of children have come to see her. The line extends through the parking lot well past the photo drop. R.L. Stein is going to be late for his interview. He's in a phone booth across the street speaking to the manager at Barnes and Noble, making a bomb threat. R.L. Stein went by his first initials years before this JK showed up. Who does that bitch think she is? From, that, from the phone booth, R.L. Stein watches the, children, watches the employees empty into the parking lot. The children scream, thinking JK herself will soon be arriving. The police sirens howl like the werewolf of Fever Swamp. Some of the children weep. The cops push the crowds further from the store as armored agents step, step warily into the building. Where is she? A little girl in potter spectacles cries. The vestiges of his goosebumps fortune were spent obtaining a first edition sorcerer's stone off eBay, just so R.L. Stein could throw it in his fireplace. R.L. Stein knows something J.K. Rowling doesn't know. One day her books will litter the aisles of goodwill. Interest will drop, and readers will stop caring about Harry. Their belief in him fading with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Along with living dummies and evil lawn domes. R.L. Stein emerges, emerges from the telephone booth like Clark Kent becomes Superman. Approaching the parking lot, he imagines the children enveloping him, holding him up in worship as he has convinced himself they used to do. But they recoil. Parents grab their kids' shoulders and eye one another uneasily. She's dead, R.L. Stein screams. The children are scared. Magic and wizards are a fad, but horror. That is the primal human motion, and its appeal will last for generations. Arl Stein grabs a stray little boy by the wrist. Kid's gonna want an autograph if Arl Stein has to carve it into his flesh. He reaches into his coat pocket for a pen. Arl Stein once met his hero, R.A. Montgomery, the creator of the Choose Your Own Adventure book series, at a scholastic trade show. R.A. hadn't published in a while. His book's popularity had declined as a result of Goosebumps' ascension. He was working as the convention center's valet, and R.L. Stein didn't even recognize him until he took back the keys to his Mercedes. The two went out for beers, the washed-up master and his auspicious disciple. They got into an argument about something, who knows what, and R.L. Stein stabbed his hero in the gut with a broken bottle. R.A. Montgomery just sat there and took it, like he expected it. Ra knew something back then that RL didn't know yet. RL Stein's options are limited, and his life is not a proverbial open book. In his choose-your-own-adventure, he's stuck on a page with only two options. Option one: RL Stein releases the boy and apologizes to the parents. He makes his interview at the, and begs his way into the photo job position. With the salve of daily masturbation and revenge fantasies, he coasts with life and obsolescence eventually succumbing to a heart attack after a particularly heavy coke binge. His obituary identifies him as a bachelor, an assistant manager, and nothing else. Option two, Arl Stein's grip on the child stays. He holds the boy's arm and jabs the pin into it. He is able to scratch out an R, an L, and half an S before the cops descend on him. When they demand he relinquish the minor, he throws the boy on the pavement and charges him, laughing an evil laugh. Mwahaha. And as their bullets enter his body like tiny meteorites, he reminds himself he only wanted to entertain. They hate him for it now, but he used to scare them, and for that he was beloved. For the dolphins.
1: Thanks, Luke. I think everyone remembers reading one, at least one Arlstein book. I remember reading the Fear Street collection. Yes, I read all of it. Sad to admit. Okay. Um, well, thanks to all the readers for coming out and reading their and sharing their flash fiction with us. Um, thank you to the Donut Hole for hosting us. Um, Andrew for the mic, and he is podcasting this, so you guys can check it out later, also on the Fractions website. Okay, um, which he's the editor of another literary journal. Um, Thanks for coming out. And our next reading will probably be in February, so keep your eyes open for sea flyers. Okay, thank you.
0: Featured music by This Great October. For more information on forward slashes or other fractions projects, go to our website, fractionsjournal.com.